You are listening to the Tech Chef Podcast, episode number 39, February 2nd, 2021. This show is produced in partnership with Hospitality Technology and Restaurant Technology Network. Smarter hotels, smarter restaurants. Hi, this is Tom Bonet, President and CEO of the National Restaurant Association and CEO of the National Restaurant Association Educational Foundation. And you're listening to Skip on the Tech Chef Podcast. Off-premise strategy, business continuity. How about a taste test of restaurant technology? Drive-through or curbside, mobile apps or AI. It's all on the menu, cooking up for the day. It's a recipe for success. You're in good hands with a tech chef. Make a plan to be your best. Strategize with the Tech Chef. Well, welcome back to the Tech Chef Podcast. This is the first time we're actually speaking in 2021, and I'm hoping you are all hanging in there. So much has happened since the last time we spoke, but I am so excited you decided to join me today for season two of the Tech Chef. Now, those of you joining us for the very first time, please go ahead and hit the subscribe button right now so you do not miss a single episode. The Tech Chef Podcast has become the best and hottest new place to get all of your restaurant and hospitality technology information and has been doing so since early last year. Now, looking at this year's production schedule, I am pretty excited because I have so many amazing guests lined up for you, including some celebrity appearances. Once again, unless you hit that subscribe button, you have a chance of missing some pretty awesome subjects and great giveaways. That's right. Anybody listening to the show knows that I love to give things away, so you certainly don't want to miss out on that. So let's start season two off with a heavy hitter, shall we? Tom Benet is president and CEO of the National Restaurant Association, the Washington, D.C.-based trade association representing the nation's restaurant and food service industry, and CEO of the National Restaurant Association Educational Foundation. Now, prior to assuming his role in June of 2020, that's right, June of 2020, Tom served as chairman, president, and CEO of Cisco Corp, the world's largest food service distributor, where he had previously served as COO, president of food service operations, and chief commercial officer. Prior to Cisco, Tom served as president of Pepsi-Cola Food Service and held a variety of senior leadership roles over his 23-year career with the company, including president of PepsiCo North America, and senior vice president of sales and franchise development. Today, he is going to give us the status of the state of the industry and what we can expect in 2021, especially from an advocacy point of view. Now, what Tom has to say affects all of us. So this is a show you do not want to skip through. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with the listeners today. 
I know they are very anxious to hear from you and about everything you have done during COVID and everything that you are planning to do in the future. In my interview with Chef Robert Irvine last year, he mentioned to me that I had to get you on the show. It really didn't take any kind of convincing at all, but the fact that he called you out specifically, I knew you were an important piece of this show and this conversation. Gosh, you joined the association in 2020, and I think it was, um, was it in June, I believe? Yes, June 1st. June 1st. Oh, my goodness. So, first of all, where did you come from previously? So, Skid, it's great to be here with you, and thanks for having me. Yeah, my background has been, you know, very focused on the food service industry for the last at least 10 years of my career. But uh, the last seven years, uh, I worked for Cisco Corporation, and I think most of the listeners know that that is a food service distribution company, the largest one in the world, uh, where I had been president and CEO for the last couple of years that I was there. And then prior to joining Cisco, I spent 23 years of my career uh, at PepsiCo uh, across various parts of the PepsiCo portfolio businesses. But most recently, uh, before I'd left there, I was the president of the uh, PepsiCo food service division, which represented all of the portfolio products for the food service industry. So I got to ask you, COVID hits heavy, heavy in March. They're shutting down restaurants. You join in June. <laughs> I got to be honest with you, most people be looking at that position going, I'm sorry, I don't want to be any part of that. So what what was intriguing to you about that? And what, obviously you have a drive and you really thought you could make a difference within the restaurant industry, but what was really attracting you to that position where you said, hey, I'm the guy for this job and I'm going to make things happen? It's a great question. And, you know, prior to joining in June, I've obviously had been in the process and talking with uh, the folks at the Restaurant Association and, and I think there were a lot of folks who were wondering whether or not as things progressed and as COVID started to show up and, you know, maybe more looking like it was going to be longer and more challenging for the industry, you know, whether I would kind of pull my name out of the hat here. And, and I did just the opposite. And as you said, I mean, it was really for me thinking that with my background and experience that I might be able to help in this situation. And I used to talk about it as kind of three legs of the stool. You've got the supplier community, the distributed community, and then you've got the operator community. And so two of those three legs of that stool I had in my background and thought I could bring some experience and support. And I knew a lot of folks in the operator side because of my time in both PepsiCo and Cisco. Um, and so for that reason, I felt like given what was going on, that uh, you know, my background and experience might be able to help. Clearly, this has gone on a lot longer than any of us had thought or, or certainly hoped. Uh, but I continue to feel incredible uh, passion for this industry, as everyone who works in it does. And uh, I've had some unbelievable support and outreach from those in the industry, meaning operators who are glad that I'm here, uh, certainly being able to leverage some of that background and experience that I talked about. Well, certainly having a strong advocate behind our industry is critical um, for, you know, I don't need to name the reasons why. At the end of last year, I really wanted to get you on the show because um, your name had been brought up multiple times. Um, I thought it was it was extremely important for you to bring on the, bring you on the show. But we also started talking about. Hang on, one, one second. There's so much going on 
politically within our organization, within the country, you know, there's a new administration that's about to come on. Let's hold off until, you know, the new, new administration kicks in so that we could really talk about, you know, the initiatives of 2021. And I, I, we're going to dig into that a little bit later on, but I, I, I want to talk more about during 2020, you know, what was it that the NRA, what did you bring to the table? What did the NRA do for our industry? Because I, I have had this discussion with many people in the past where they don't truly understand the advocates that, that are fighting for our industry. They don't know. It's all, not always transparent to them. So in 2020, during COVID, at, in, the, in the crux of everything that's happening, what did the NRA do for the restaurant industry? So let's start prior to my even joining, because I think that's you know, really important. This is less about me and my role and more about what the association and foundation you know, really do to support the industry. So as soon as COVID hit, I mean, literally right out of the gate, we were advocating for relief for the restaurant industry. We were, uh, through our research arm, we were sharing, communicating with key leaders and, uh, and you know, politicians, congressional leaders, the president's office around what the challenges were going to be and what the issues were with this very you know, important industry uh, in, the, in the United States. Huge to our communities, huge to the workforce, et cetera, et cetera. So very early on, we were out there advocating for things that we knew the industry would need to keep it effective and successful uh, throughout something like this. That included not just asking for additional support uh, throughout the, you know, the, the early days, but it also um, showed up in ways around how do restaurants operate in a safe environment. So a big part of what we do is we've got a training and certification arm that works closely around food and food handling, uh, something we've done for years. And this is obviously a highly regulated industry in that regard. And so we took that expertise we have around training and certification and pivoted that to say, what are the things that we need to do as restaurants to stay open and reopen uh, in some cases, effectively and successfully. Because as you, as all the listeners know, we were one of the first industries kind of shut down because of the, the COVID-19 pandemic. So it, in addition to helping restaurants think through how do they operate safely, how do they operate in an environment that helps the guests, we also said, look, a ton of restaurant employees have been impacted in the early days of this. So through our foundation, we also came together with uh, Guy Fieri and created the Restaurant Employee Relief Fund, which ultimately raised a little over $22.5 million and gave grants to over 46,000 restaurant workers who were out of work in the early days. So very early on, and most of that happened candidly before I even joined in June 1st. And so early days, right on the front line, working with the industry, doing everything we could to support the industry. As the obviously months, days, months, and, and the year ensued, and this thing drug on a lot longer, we continued to advocate very heavily for the uh, the industry. Uh, the early days, it was making sure the original round of PPP met the requirements of the industry. So there was the Flexibility Act that we uh, partnered with uh, the government on to make sure that it was set up for success for folks in this industry. Uh, throughout the summer, we put out what was our blueprint for restaurant recovery, which started to talk about all the various things that the industry needed in addition to financial support. And we can certainly talk about some of those things, but it talked about if and when there was a vaccine, how restaurant and food service workers should be treated as, as that relates to that. Uh, it talked about things that, uh, you know, relief 
for things like PPP uh, deductibility as it went forward. So all the things that are important to operators in the industry. And then I'd say, in addition to that, we recognized at the time that there was a lot of misinformation getting out there. And so that misinformation was creating certainly concerns among consumers about even eating in restaurants. So we created a program uh, called the Dining Commitment, which allowed restaurant operators to say, these are all the things that we've done in our restaurant. And then we helped to communicate that to consumers, their guests, so that they had a, a way of knowing, hey, this restaurant or that restaurant are following all these procedures, protocols that gives me as a consumer comfort and confidence that I can go and have a meal in that restaurant uh, safely uh, and securely. So that's just a, a few examples of things that we've done uh, in 2020. But you know, I could go on the list as long, and, and certainly uh, we spend every waking hour as a team here focused on what can we do to help the restaurants be successful um, as operators, and certainly during a pandemic, all the things that they need to enable that success. And I know you have a very strong team behind you. I'm, I'm, I'm sure when you entered the organization, you did so knowing the fact that you had advocates that were t- willing to take this to the next level. But you brought up a very good point. And that was kind of on my list of things to talk about. And that is restaurant workers consider being frontline workers. And in regards to the, the vaccines being part of the 1B or 1C group, what is the NRA's position on that in regards to pushing that forward through the administration down to the state level? I realize everything comes down to the state level, but is the NRA pushing for the fact that restaurant hourly workers are considered frontline workers and they should be vaccinated? Absolutely. And from the very beginning, we were very focused on making sure that frontline workers and the restaurant industry were in fact essential. And so the good news is early on the restaurant industry and those workers were deemed essential. So we continue, you know, throughout the year uh, last year to push for the fact that as essential workers, they, uh, in addition to other, you know, essential workers should be placed at the front, uh, you know, of the vaccination um, curve. Now, having said that, we certainly acknowledge that that needs to be after, you know, those senior citizens or those that are at risk and even those healthcare workers are dealing on the front line every day. So when we say we want to be prioritized, as you said, on a C1, C2, that's recognizing that there are other folks who should go in front of it. But the food supply chain is critically important. And obviously the health and safety of those workers who touch that supply chain are really important. We have advocated from day one that they continue and need to be um, at the, at the you know, early stages of the vaccination. And that's not just us as the national, but as you suggested, working in close hand-in-hand uh, efforts with our state restaurant association partners, because it, a lot of these things do ultimately come down to states making these decisions. And many of them have been very successful in continuing to uh, encourage the right uh, outcomes here as it relates to uh, frontline food service workers. And I certainly don't want to get down into specific state uh, issues. You know, I, I live in the state of Florida. So obviously the Florida Restaurant and Lodging Association is close and near and dear to my heart. Our governor, I mean, we have a massive elderly population that we're trying to deal with and trying to get vaccinated right now. But what is the overall feeling? And obviously, you've had time to talk to the new administration. First of all, do you have support from the new administration that restaurant workers are considered um, frontline workers and should be vaccinated? I think broadly speaking, yes. Uh, I think that 
know, again, this food supply chain is critically important. And uh, with the new administration's focus on pandemic relief in general and trying to do everything that they can to uh, keep the population safe while they're in line to get vaccinated, I think we feel that there's a, a good uh, support there for what we're, we're both trying to accomplish. And obviously keeping politics aside, because that's not what this conversation is about. But, uh, you know, there's there's certain mindsets in regards to, you know, who, you know, every state has the ability to create their own priority level from a vaccination piece. Um, is the NRA working with individual state um, re- associations, restaurant associations, in order to help prioritize uh, the restaurant workers from this perspective of uh, an, an, an immediate and effective um, employee that needs to be vaccinated? You know, in short, the answer is yes. I mean, we, we work collaboratively with the states really on uh, certainly all federal type programs, but also anything they need in the state. I mean, we are uh, work together with them and trying to help them accomplish our collective industry goals but also if there are unique things that happen in any states, we're generally there to support them as well. And so the, the good news is here is that many states have also prioritized uh, restaurant workers in those in the levels we've talked. I think where they are, you know, where they haven't, I think it's really a matter of maybe other areas that, that they believe for their state is a, a focus or a higher priority. But I think generally we feel pretty good about where the vaccination, you know, position has landed for the food service industry and many of those frontline workers. As you've articulated, though, and living where you do, you you obviously very, you understand that every state is different. And, and throughout the pandemic, that's been true. You know, states have chosen different approaches around uh, dining, whether indoor and outdoor dining and what was available and what was allowed. Uh, and, you know, you happen to be in a state that, as you probably are well aware, has been much more open than others. And they clearly have the benefit of kind of weather most of the year working in their favor. But the reality is, you know, there have been states like Florida have done a phenomenal job of ensuring that this industry could remain open to the best of its ability uh, to enable those operators there to, you know, be successful uh, to whatever extent was possible during the pandemic. Uh, And that wasn't always the case in every other state. And uh, clearly, as we're in the winter months now, weather plays a huge uh, factor in the restaurant's ability in those states to be effective or successful. Of course. And I I consider myself very, very fortunate to live in a state, you know, being in the industry I'm in, um, in order to be able to accommodate for those those pieces. And we have a governor that advocates, you know, just to keep the hospitality industry thriving because it is such a critical piece to our state's economy that it can't be ignored. But since you brought up Florida, I'm going to dig into another issue. And, you know, this comes down to some of the legislation pieces. And that's the focus on uh, the minimum wage issue. Um, Obviously, in Florida, this year, we passed the $15 minimum wage bill, which obviously gets, um, you know, it's, it's a gradual progression. But I know there's this Raise the Wage Act that is out there that has great momentum across the entire country. I would love to hear your input in regards to how the NRA um, views this and kind of the advocacy behind, do you support it? Don't you support it? And, you know, the reasons why behind that. Well, first and foremost, I think we want uh, to have this industry at the table to discuss any increases to minimum wage. And I believe, we believe that that is a very fair request. 
we understand the industry the best. We can educate folks uh, on this topic as it relates to our industry. And I think that uh, lawmakers should be open to getting insights and perspective on on all the industries that these type of things uh, affect. And I think that there are some unique things about the restaurant industry that are really important. But broadly speaking, I think we struggle with at a time where everyone knows at this point, I think you're, yeah, there's probably no American who doesn't realize that restaurants and the hospitality industry in general has been significantly impacted during uh, this time. And for there to be legislation that's contemplating a dramatic hike in labor costs during uh, for an industry that's dealing with what we've been dealing with as people are trying to just keep their doors open and people employed um, is is disappointing at the, the least and certainly uh, <laughs> almost uh, unfathomable in other terms. But the, the reality here is that the increases in minimum wage, we are open to conversation about increase in minimum wage. And as you think about, you know, what Florida did recently or other states have done or are contemplating, I think it needs to be balanced. It needs to be balanced from the perspective of uh, understanding the impact that'll have on the owner operator, understanding the impact that will have on workers and potential jobs uh, going forward. And then specifically to this industry, there's something called the tip wage. And I think that there's so much lack of understanding around the tip wage and tip credit that I think it oftentimes gets thrown into these conversations and people don't realize the implications. I would say in, this, in the case of Florida, that was an example of where the, the legislation that was passed around tip wage and tip credit was uh, unfortunately very poorly executed and it will be very problematic going forward for, for the industry. And I think uh, could lead to you know hundreds if not thousands of skilled hospitality workers seeing cuts in their hourly income. And so I think it's really about education, wanting to be at the table, and we're willing to have conversation about it because we understand it. But it's also, in our opinion, it's not a national topic. It, it's different by state, and it needs to be thought of as a state by state because what's appropriate in Manhattan, New York, is not necessarily the same as necessary in uh, in Alabama. And so I think it's not about you know one consistent wage as it is about understanding the dynamics that go into wages how we make sure we create the right environment so that individuals and businesses can both operate successfully and effectively uh, in the future. I agree. And I think that's kind of the disconnect in the state of Florida where the people at the, at the time, so this came, you know, the election is, is in November when it was on the ballot and everybody's thinking they go to the ballot box and they see this on their, their ballot form and they're thinking these poor workers they need more money, for goodness sakes, this is a pandemic, but they, they're not looking at the full financial piece of what it does. I mean, it's going to be a reduction of labor hours, higher costs for patrons in regards to the food costs, and it really does more damage to the individual that they're intending to help. And I think, I think the story is being told in the wrong way, or the story is not being put out there so people have a full understanding of what this really means to the to the economy. So, I thank you for your input on on all of that because, you know, it's I, I I believe along with you that this is not a nationwide push forward. It nor should it be. It is a region by region, state by state initiative that should be thought through based upon the needs of that individual state and what they can afford to do. And certainly a time frame around that that's not just mandated across the board, but, you know, if it is going to happen, how do we make this happen so we don't put all of the mom and pop organizations out of business? Because that's my fear. 
Um, I don't want to see my, my local pizzeria down the street that I love so much not being able to do business and give me my pizza because they got to close their doors. They can't afford to stay open anymore. And that's, that's, that's our fear. And obviously that's our fight as well. Let's for a second, talk about the immigration piece, you know, the, the path to legalization and how that affects um, the restaurant industry. Look, I think this would be an area that we are supportive of what the administration, uh, at least as best we understand the, the policies and reforms they're suggesting. I think that there should be a pathway uh, for legalization. And I think that um, creating that environment is, is going to be good, not only for our industry, but I think for many industries. And that includes to me an effective essential worker program to make sure there's a way to meet the, the workforce needs that this country has. Um, yes, we need to secure our borders, but we also need to be able to facilitate efficient, effective travel and tourism. And certainly, as we've talked about, I mean, a state like Florida and many others uh, really depend on that. And then I think we've got to find ways to implement you know, reliable federal employment verification programs so that this can be managed and maintained going forward. But broadly speaking, we support a lot of what I think the new administration is suggesting around immigration. All right. I'm going to take a step back before I know we're coming to the close of our conversation here. But I saw a very interesting piece come across the National Restaurant News um, email list that I, I, everybody subscribes to in regards to some of the third party companies um, working with the National Restaurant Association for uh, the transparency and fair delivery practices. And I apologize. I did, I did not prep you for this, but you know, there's certain things like capping fees um, coming into to fair agreements because certainly during COVID, I mean, prior to COVID off-premise third-party delivery was a growing piece of everybody's business from the restaurant industry. Maybe not necessarily the fine dining or the polished casual market. However, COVID really enforced that piece moving forward. So every it's on everybody's mind. Can you talk a little bit about that if you have a chance to, you know, to discuss about, you know, what that kind of looks like in the future for third-party delivery companies and restaurants? So, uh, you know, I probably am not the most qualified to go too deep in this area, but what I will tell you is I think during the pandemic, there are so many great examples of where third-party delivery companies came together to support this industry and do some things that would enable owners, operators uh, to get products to consumers, um, you know, who couldn't come into the restaurant. So I think that it's, we know that one of the things that happened during COVID that has, was helpful to restaurants was that, you know, those that had delivery takeout already or the drive-through, they were probably better positioned to be successful, but many had to pivot to adding delivery and takeout. And that was very helpful. And again, many of those third-party companies did some great work to support the industry during that uh, early time for sure. In addition, what I think you, what you're referring to is the work that we are doing on behalf of the industry with many of these third-party providers to create the right environment so that um, there can be a win-win here. And I think the, the point you were making is I think early days, maybe pre-COVID, there was, it was believed that there wasn't always a win-win solution here, that, you know, there was a, it was more one-sided than it needed to be. And I applaud the, many of the third-party folks for working with us and trying to create more transparency programs that are, you know, truly win-win programs. Is it perfect? Are we exactly where we need to be yet? Probably not. Um, but I think that the, the effort that's being made on both sides 
is uh, deserves recognition, and I think we'll continue to get to a better place for the industry in total. And uh, and obviously, many of these third-party players, this industry is critically important to to their long-term success. So I think we're making progress. I think that's the headline and the good news, and still more to come. But uh, I feel good about the work that's going on between uh, third-party delivery folks and our industry. Well, and I have to agree because during COVID they did come up to the plate and say, you know, <laughs> we're going to help you reduce fees. We're going to, we're going to find ways to help you because we realize you're a, a piece of our critical infrastructure across the board. And they really were helpful um, in regards to, you know, keeping restaurants alive during the times when we couldn't even, you know, serve a, a guest out of our restaurant. So yeah, actually kudos to them. Let's dig in right now to the Educational Foundation, uh, because I know that's a big piece of the NRA, and I, I know you have a passion for this. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Well, the, the Educational Foundation is one of these, you know, as I joined the Association and Foundation, one of the things for me that I learned, and I knew a little of this from my background, both at PepsiCo and Cisco, but I became even more aware of some of the great work that this organization does. And it's really its mission uh, is, you know, around enhancing the industry's training and education, workforce development, and community engagement efforts. And that takes many different kind of uh, turns to, to get there, but things like the Educational Foundation Scholarship programs that are, that are out there and you know where many uh, folks can apply for these scholarships as an example. We talked about the Restaurant Employee Relief Fund that came about right the early days of the pandemic to support you know, uh, thousands of restaurant workers who were in need. Um, there's a program called Restaurant Recruit, which was launched in the fall of 2020 that allows us to connect military service members with restaurant job opportunities. And so we're trying to continue to look for ways to bring folks into the industry to create opportunity um, and really to provide that that long-term, uh, certainly, workforce for the industry, but also to continue to reinforce all the great things going on here. There are apprenticeship programs to help folks in restaurant management. Um, we have a program around justice-involved youth to help with kind of first job skills and employment opportunities. So lots of things that we're doing both in partnership with many government re, uh, organizations, but also partnering with um, educational institutions, organizations and institutions around getting more high school students jobs in culinary arts or restaurant management through our ProStart program. So it's just a, it's one of these really great things that we at the foundation do. And well, by the way, we're supported by so many great partners uh, who have vested interest in the industry or its success that really enables us to, to provide this type of giving back to really to, uh, you know, potential employees and to create an environment to support the industry uh, and their employers. And when I look back at it, I really look at what you guys do is your best in class as far as advocacy, your, you know, the ability to give back to the industry. And if I'm not mistaken, you've got over $1 million in scholarship money out there. Is that not correct? We do. Yes. That's amazing. And uh, I know the application process was open through most of January. It may be closed now, but uh, yes, we. And that's a pretty, uh, pretty much an annual program where we try to create that opportunity out there. Awesome. So, Tom, as we start to close things out here, I believe there's a state of the restaurant industry data article that's coming out. When is that expected to hit? And 
Where can our listeners find that when it does come out? The State of the Industry Report actually was came out earlier this week. And so the good news is it's out there now. And what it's intended to do is provide a uh, very comprehensive perspective on what happened in the industry in 2020. In the past, we've also done some projections for 2021. And given the environment we're operating in, we had less of that as part of the uh, the report this year. But you know, the headlines is it's out there right now. It's uh, available through the National Restaurant Association. And uh, it's basically intended to provide a a good cross-section of what happened and and where we see some of the shifts that took place in 2020. Things like the impacts overall on the the revenue of the industry, the jobs in the industry, uh, operators in particular, impacts on workforce, as well as what we think some of the key trends that happened in 2020 that might change the future of the industry you know, as an example, we we saw things like in the technology space, which is obviously very important to your listeners. You know, we feel like over the six, eight months of 2020, when everyone was dealing with the pandemic, there was probably a five year acceleration in what has been happening in technology over the last couple of years. So yes. lots of insights and information in there about what's going on in the industry, not the least, which is the the impact that the industry had last year. Well, and that's a, that's a perfect lead into my question, you know, above and beyond the vaccine, when that's released, everything starts to try to get back to normal. We hope, you know, from a technology perspective, what stays from last year versus the future? I know we, like you said, there is this five-year advancement that happened in months in 2020. And I, the question everybody comes back to me from a technologist's point of view is, or not even a technologist's point of view, from a CFO and a CEO's perspective, they're like, So the money that we just spent, you know, what's going to stick around? What's not going to stick around? What do you, what does the future kind of look like to you from a technology perspective in the restaurant industry? Well, I think technology is clearly one of those areas that we think that the things that happened in 2020, many of them are here to stay. And whether it's the fact that more consumers in general across all the different cohorts are now more comfortable with technology like, um, you know, think, think about everything from delivery applications to contactless payment. So I think we've all learned, if we didn't already know, how to use those kind of tools. And that, that acceleration, I think, is definitely here to stay. As, as we all know, once you've tried something, you've gotten comfortable with it, then the ease of use and the frequency of use goes up dramatically. Uh, so technology, both uh, in the front of the house, if you will, for consumers and guests, QR codes for menus, probably a technology that many thought was kind of a dying or dead technology has come back, you know, because of menus and all the contactless piece. Contactless payments, as we've talked about, is, is clearly here to stay. Some things in the back of the house probably also have been accelerated, just helping operators think differently about everything from scheduling to um, managing their inventory and ordering because there's just more and more need to be able to do things remotely and to do things online. And so all of those things, I think, accelerated in, in 2020. Other couple areas that we, th- we saw that we think were, were here to stay, streamlined menus. We heard a lot about operators initially having to streamline their menu. I think initially that was just to you know, save time and be able to improve the, ensure the quality is there with maybe uh, not the full workforce. And also just inventory uh, because of the challenges, some of the food supply chain early days. Um, but streamlined menus, I think people realize they can be successful with a streamlined menu. Some have gone into selling groceries. Think about this more as a fill-in occasion. I don't think it's something that is going to be a huge part of the industry going forward, but we've seen some of that, uh, and I think that could continue. Alcohol to go. Great example of 
a real lifeline for the industry early days of the pandemic. And many states have already uh, approved that for kind of long term now, which is which is a great thing. Obviously, you know, for everyone's benefit, we want to make sure that it's got the right uh, provisions and parameters around that so that all the great work that's been done by the alcoholic beverage industry over the years to make sure that, you know, the right people of the right age are, are getting access needs to stay in place. But that's a great example of something else uh, that's happened. And then lastly, I'd just say this whole idea of ghost kitchens, you know, virtual brands, I think is going to continue to create opportunities for the industry. I think will provide consumers more options, but ultimately allows guests to get access to products and brands uh, without maybe the operator having to have the same level of investment in infrastructure, think uh, bricks and mortar locations and uh, equipment, uh, but rather leveraging some of the equipment that might be existing in another physical restaurant or another place altogether. You're right. You're hundred percent right. I, I think the vision, what, you know, what the traditional restaurant look like versus what uh, 2020 has done and what it looks like in the future, I think it's a completely different piece and it's, it's accelerated to a whole new level. The alcohol to go piece, I have to say that our governors is a big advocate for that. Um, and I know it has been a big advantage for a lot of our restaurants in order their, for their survival. Um, it just is what it is. You know, it's, it gives them the opportunity to at least keep the income coming in to compensate for, you know, the lack of people sitting in the restaurant. So, you know, one of the, when I first got involved in the restaurant industry, I was with a company called Anthony's Colfire Pizza. My CFO, who was my boss at the time, was such an advocate for me getting involved with the organization. And he said, listen, I belong to the CFO piece of the NRA. I think you need to get involved with this uh, association called the IT Executive Study Group. I'm going to get you connected. I have to tell you, that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me within the industry. Um, and it is, it, I met colleagues, you know, I was a small time guy. I was new into the restaurant industry, but the NRA had these resources that really made me as a professional successful and excelled me. And what I'm super excited about, I'm just throwing this out there that, you know, now there, there's the IT virtual conference, obviously we're meeting virtually because we can't meet in person, but just the continuation of that group and the fact that that's continuing on with all of my colleagues out there in the industry. I'm so excited that things haven't fallen by the wayside. I know you're concentrated on so many other big um, initiatives, especially legislative in initiatives, but from a operator's perspective, all of those other pieces really make a difference. And I'm so glad you guys do that. And thank you for doing that. So I'm going to stop there and I'm going to close out the show and I'm going to throw you some last minute questions here. I did not prepare you for this. This is a little section I call this or that. So I'm going to throw out you a, a couple options and you tell me your choice. First word that comes to your mind. You ready? Yep. Go All right, here we go. Frappuccino or iced coffee? Frappuccino. Frappuccino. Magic wand or magic carpet? Magic carpet. Oh, why is that? Why is that? Uh, easy access to move from one place to another without any friction. <laughs> nice. All right, that's the most uh, the most in depth question I'll have. Potato chips, plain, sour cream and onion, or barbecue? Sour cream and onion. All right, I like that. Organic or gluten free? Organic. 
And the most important question of the day, curly or crinkle fries? Curly. <laughs> Tom, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to talk to our listeners today. I I know I wanted you on before the end of 2020, but as I mentioned, you know, through our conversation, it meant so much more, you know, talking toward the end of January as as you began to work with the new administration and talk about new policies and initiatives and really, you know, moving that forward and, you know, the mindset of our country. So thank you so much. Um, Please keep up the good fight for all of us. you are the governmental advocacy hand of the entire industry. And that is so important to us. You got to realize that, that it means everything down to the, down to the dishwasher. Um, and it really does have a lasting impact. And thank you for everything you do um, and your team. For We're all wishing the best of success in keeping our industry employed and moving forward, obviously. If there's ever an opportunity or petition for some new cause that you feel our industry needs to support, do not be afraid to reach out. Use this show as your platform to get the message out there because we have a great group of listeners that will definitely latch onto that and make sure that happens. So once again, Tom, thank you so much. Thank you, Skip. Great to be here with you and to all your listeners. Uh, We're here for you. And uh, as you said, we're here to support the entire industry. So thank you for the time and great to be with all of you. I don't know about you, but I personally wouldn't want to be in Tom's shoes right now. He has a monumental task in front of him, and it takes a very special person to see it through. Our industry relies upon this organization, and Tom appears to have what it takes to get us through this pandemic with flying colors. Now, I haven't mentioned it in a while, but if you have any questions about this show or for any one of my guests, you can always reach out to me at everything social at Skip Kimple. That includes Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also go to the website at skipkimple.com, where not only will you find every single one of these shows, but you're also going to find the show notes listed there as well. And we've also included a very special hotline where you can leave a comment at 954-302-0851. Well, folks, that's it for this week. But as you well know, next Tuesday is yet another Tech Chef podcast where we're going to have another guest with some amazing content as always. So until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, And stay hungry, my friends.